Good morning. Today's scripture will be reading 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, if you want to turn there. And we will be um, starting in verse 16 all the way through chapter 2 to verse 10. So 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But false prophets... Also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept till the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and who despise authority." Good morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this this glorious morning. And um, grateful, Lord, that you, uh, Lord Jesus, are on your throne and that you are a good, loving, and sovereign king. And we thank you, Lord, that that the work that you um, started in each of us that you're bringing to completion. And I thank you that uh, for your word, that your word is truly a lamp in a dark place. And Lord, even though you, uh, Father, made the world um, in perfection, it was marred by the sin of humanity. And Lord, we don't have to look too far to see brokenness and corruption and wickedness um, all around us in this world. But we thank you that you told us that even though you told us in this world there there would be trouble, there would be corruption, there would be wickedness, 
that we can take heart because you have overcome the world. And I thank you for that promise that you gave to us as your um, sons and daughters, as your followers, Lord, that we um, have, that you have overcome the world, therefore we have overcome the world in union with Christ. And I thank you for our great salvation. I pray, God, that, that in this passage this morning that in many ways is, uh, has been difficult for me, um, Lord, I thank you that, um, that the encouragement that you brought me, the conviction that you brought me, and I, I pray that I would stand behind your word, and I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would uh, take your word and uh, change our hearts, that we would just get a glimpse of, just a further glimpse of your amazing love for us, and how because of that love we are called to respond in joyful obedience. So have your way with us. We pray all these things in Jesus' powerful name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Good morning again. So we are, uh, we're continuing in 2 Peter. And um, the, I've titled the uh, message, Pay Attention. Pay Attention. And, um, and if you are paying attention this morning, one thing you may have noticed is that, that there's like a, um, other than our beautiful keyboard player, it's like a boy band. And, um, and there's a lot of ladies that are missing. And it's because there's a, a retreat, a women's retreat going on. And another evidence, if you pay attention, of a women's retreat going on is um, kids with shoes on the wrong feet, um, shirts buttoned wrong, um, hair messed up. Although some of you young dads have done a pretty good job, I've got to admit. You've done a pretty good job. I have no idea what your kids ate this morning or last night, but I trust there was a lot of sugar. Yeah, no doubt about it. So I want to ask you, how many times in your life do you regret not paying attention? Maybe advice given from parents. Maybe a warning not to date somebody. Maybe a warning not to eat that jalapeno pepper. There were times in my life where I wish I would have paid more attention. Uh, In school, certainly. To my parents. To my wife. To my kids. To the speed limit. A couple of weeks ago, I was running something that anymore I don't like to do that much. I was running in a warm-up for a workout. It was a 400-meter run, and we were just running to the end of the street and back, and I was jawing with a couple of my friends. Next thing I know, I'm like in midair, and just seeing the pavement coming up on me. There was a sidewalk, actually, and I hit my shoulder and my hip. I, I had, I've, I've ran that path. 200 times before. And what I tripped over was a small crack in the sidewalk. It was about a a quarter inch high and I completely biffed it head over heels because I wasn't paying attention. Have you ever been in utter darkness? Just complete darkness? There was a a few years back we went to a mine in um, Idaho Springs. And I'm pretty sure it was a gold mine. It was a working mine, but they were giving tours. We went into this mine, and, they, they, and um, they, there was artificial light in it, and we walked so far back into it that you could no longer see the natural light in the entrance. It was all um, illuminated by natural, or excuse me, by, by uh, manufactured lighting. And so as they, they turned the light off, it was completely dark. I've never experienced that kind of darkness. I mean, you could not see this. It was really, really weird. And they actually encouraged us to kind of grab a hold of each other and, and shuffle along. 
And I realized, I realized how easy it is in that moment to take light for granted, right? We just, we just flip a switch. Uh, we just turn, turn on a flashlight. Light protects us, it comforts us, and it gives us direction. It also brings light to treasures. Without light in this mine, we would have had no idea how to walk. We were bumping into this sharp wall. There was a, like a, a, a cliff that hung off there that they didn't let us get anywhere close to. But without light, we had no idea how to walk. Therefore, it was scary. And, we would, and if we were in there very long, we would lose hope because we would not get to see, actually, the treasure that we were there for. Not only did it protect and comfort us, but we, could, we didn't have a direction to actually see the treasure, the gold. You'd never find gold in midst darkness, in the midst of darkness. God's word is very similar to that. God's word, as it says in 1 Peter, is a lamp in the midst of a dark place. And Peter says that we're to pay attention to it. He's, he's encouraged us to know God's word, but now he says actually pay attention to it. And you may be here this morning thinking, um, I know God's Word. Um, I, I've got a lot of it memorized. I know what it says, but I don't always pay attention to it. You may know His Word intellectually. You may um, have sat through all kinds of Bible studies, and in the Bible studies you went into those studies with like a size 6 and 5 eighths head, and you come out of them with like a size 9 head. And the reason you've got a size 9 head now is because you know it, but you don't live it. You don't pay attention to it. You may be here this morning and not even know where to start. You, you may be a new Christian. You may have been a Christian for a while, but you really haven't spent much time in God's Word. My prayer this morning is that this passage increases your desire to both know God's Word and to pay attention to God's Word, no matter where you're at in the journey. Wherever you're at is where you're at. And God has given us his word to be a lamp to us in a dark place that protects us, it comforts us, and it gives us direction. Peter's writing this second letter of hope shortly before his death. This, is, this isn't very long before he died. And he's writing, as it says back in chapter 1, verse 1, and he's writing to those who've obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to Christians that have the same salvation that he has. And I love the way he starts this letter out by, by reminder that we did nothing to earn our standing in God's kingdom. Our righteousness or, or our lack of righteousness could never save us from the penalty of our sins. It's only by faith in Jesus' perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection that we are saved. Jesus took all our sin upon himself, and we became united with him so that by his righteousness, we are saved. And I know I'm speaking to the choir in many, many ways, but we can never tire of hearing the gospel. The gospel isn't just for those who don't know Christ. It is for those who don't know Christ. But it's especially for us who know Christ to remind us that we were dead in our sins and trespasses. But by God's mercy, he made us alive in Christ Jesus. 
This is a foundational truth in Christianity, but it's extra important in this book of 2 Peter. It's extra important because, because Peter's going to spend a lot of time talking about how we are to live, how Christians are to behave. So we need to get it straight right up front that Christians are to live in obedience to God's law, in obedience to the Bible, but it doesn't save us, it doesn't cause him to love us or accept us anymore. We're already, if you know Jesus, you are already fully and forever accepted and loved. And our obedience is a response to that. And then Peter tells us right after the reminder that we have equal standing in Christ's righteousness because of faith, right after that, Peter tells Christians that we, he's, that we, we possess every resource that we need to live on this rock in joyful obedience to God's good and perfect rule. Uh, rule. And he says it in 2 Peter 1, 3-4. Let me read it. It says, His divine power, God's divine power has granted to us, to you if you know Jesus, His divine power has granted to us all things, everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them, through these promises, you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So, so Peter says, yeah, you are, you are righteous because of Christ's righteousness in you, and, you, and you were in, that righteousness was imputed into you because of your faith in the gospel, the faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, I've given you everything you need to live in this corrupt world. And then Peter, in verse, chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, he gives us seven qualities of a growing Christian. I'm not going to go over those, but he's, he says, here's seven qualities that a growing Christian should have in some measure. And then he goes on in chapter 1, verse 8, and he says this. He says, when these qualities, these seven qualities or character traits are yours, and they're increasing, they keep you from becoming ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And what Peter's saying here is not that we're saved by good works. Not that we're saved by good character, but that the evidence of genuine salvation is growing in Christ-likeness or growing in godliness. One who's been saved from the penalty of their sins and called into a relationship with Jesus Christ will have increasing fruitfulness in their life. Not perfection, but what? Direction. That one who's been radically saved by God's grace has a new direction in their life. Not perfection. It doesn't mean there's not going to be lapses from time to time, but it's an overall direction. And then he lays out the remedy for Christians who are lacking these qualities. He says if you're lacking these qualities, if you find yourself um, continuing to be um, grabbed by sin, he says here's the solution in verse 9, chapter 1. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Peter said, remember these things. Don't forget, he says you will need to know the truth and you'll you'll need to be able to recall the truth when faced with false teachers living amongst the wickedness in this world. And now let's go to the sermon from last week. And I had an opportunity to listen to the sermon on my way back from the airport on Monday. And uh, just, just, a, just a plug. Um, you guys are so blessed to have 
a pastor like Pat Brady that opens the word and is diligent to preaching and dissecting God's word like he is. And I listened to the, I listened to the message on the way back and I was, my, my soul was so encouraged about what was proclaimed that Sunday, last Sunday. And let me, let me um, read to you, um, let's see, where am I at here? Yeah, so he was on chapter 1, 16 through 21, where Peter reminded his followers that we've been given the very word of God. We've been given the Bible to instruct us how to live until he returns in all of his glory to rescue his own and bring judgment on those who don't live in submission to his good rule. So if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to pick up in chapter 1, verse 19. It'll also be on the screen where Peter gives testimony to seeing Jesus in his future glory. This, this happens right after Peter gives testimony to see in Jesus in his future glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. It says this. He says, we have the, prof- the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The prophetic word is the inspired word of God spoken through men. Prophecy is simply the the proclamation of God's word. New prophecy, revelation, is is, uh, we won't see that anymore. But what I'm doing this morning is I am prophesying, if you will, God's word. Not new revelation, not Dan Hardy's opinion, but God's word. So the prophetic word that's being talked about here is the inspired word of God spoken through men. And prophecy as a rule, as as a hard and fast rule, is never produced by the will of man. It's always produced by the will of God. Knowing the word of God is essential for the Christian, for you and I to live victoriously in God's kingdom on earth while awaiting his return. Peter encourages us to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And the end goal, folks, is not to simply know God's word. That's not the goal. That is not our goal. That's not why we do this on Sunday morning. That's not why there's a woman's Bible study. That's not why we do community groups. The end is not to simply know God's word, but to devote thought and effort to it, to heed, take heed of it, to live by it, to fall in more in love with the Savior who created us and who saved us. All of this devotion being motivated by our love for the God of the word. God's word is a light shining in darkness and it protects us, it comforts us, it directs us and we will do well to pay attention to it. Not just on Sunday morning, but but throughout the week. Why pay attention? Peter gives two critical reasons to not only know God's word, but to pay attention to it so that it can bring comfort, protection and guidance to you. Number one, it's to help us identify and resist the lies of false teachers. Two, it's to help us live godly in the midst of a corrupt and wicked world that we live in. Let's first see what Peter has to say about false teachers in verse 1, chapter 2. He says, but false prophets also rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. A true prophet, as I already said, is the one who speaks the very words of God. And Peter informs us that true prophecy is spoken from God through men carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
A prophet is simply one who speaks forth the word of God. And Peter tells us that there has always been false prophets. Even in Israel, there's false prophets. They were, there's false prophets among the ones that he's writing to in first century. And it's implied that there will be false teachers amongst all of us until Jesus returns. And these false teachers will trip us up and they will deceive us if we don't pay attention to what God's word is telling us. He warns us that false teachers will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Let me tell you what a heresy is. A heresy in its simple form is is a lie that contradicts God's word. A heresy is a lie that contradicts God's word. It's not a simple disagreement on a minor doctrine like like men's and women's roles or maybe the way that that plurality in a church should work. Okay, there's there's different understandings of minor um, doctrines, if you will. But but a heresy is a out-and-out lie, a willful lie that contradicts God's word. And most heresy will offer something that is appealing to you and I. Heresy is, is, it comes in deceptively and destructively and secretly because it appeals to us. It appeals to our flesh. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis uh, 3, 1 through 6. It'll be on the screen as well. And I want you to notice Satan's appeal in the heresy that he taught Adam and Eve. In verse 1. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. False teachers are crafty. False teachers know how to appeal to our appetite, to our flesh, to give us the offer of good things at the risk of losing the best thing. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the servant, serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Listen to how the serpent appeals to the flesh and the desires of Eve. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God and you will know good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired and make one wise, she took its fruit and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And that's how false teaching spreads. It gets passed on. What does heresy look like? Peter actually names a specific heretical teaching here. I'm going to actually back up a second and remind you that heresy is always destructive. It's never good. And it comes subtly. And it comes secretly. Like that small crack that tripped me up. If we're not looking, if we're not paying attention, it can trip me up. Further, and don't miss this, that heresy usually comes from those who claim allegiance, does not come from those who claim allegiance to a different God. Heresy oftentimes comes from those who pledge an allegiance to Jesus Christ.
That's why Peter calls these heresies secret and dangerous. And let me say this. Something like Islam that is just so obviously wrong, so obviously off the market, is not going to deceive a Christian. But heresy shoots all around the bullseye. If there's the bullseye of truth, and the heart of that is the truth of God's word, non-heresy, truth, heresy is all around that bullseye. It's very hard to see. It's very hard to see. And then Peter actually names a specific heretical teaching that is probably the most dangerous teaching in the name of Jesus. He says, he says these, these false teachers will secretly bring in destructive ter- heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Master means one who has supreme authority, whether human authority or whether divine authority. Peter here warns that false prophets deny the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. They teach that there is salvation without life change. They teach that you can pray the prayer and ask Jesus in your heart, and then you can go the rest of your life living any way you choose. That's the most destructive heresy on the planet, because what it does is it gives a false salvation. It gives a false hope. It gives a false security that people are in. Heresy will always, in some shape or form, give you permission to not live in submission to Jesus as your Lord and Master. And apparently these false teachers preach a gospel of grace that somehow frees them to live their lives in accordance with their own fleshly desires and not in accordance with the desires of God through His Word. They don't necessarily deny Jesus as God, but by their lives and their teaching, they deny Him as Master or Sovereign Lord. And in verse 2, they're described as living lives of sensuality, which means licentiousness. You go, what's licentiousness? Licentiousness means that that they, they profess faith in Christ. They're saved by grace, which we are. That is an absolute final truth. But grace calls one saved by grace to live a different direction. It doesn't give us a license to continue sinning. That's exactly what licentiousness means. Excuse me, sensuality means is licentious licentiousness, particularly immorality. And we see that all over the church big C today. We see today that people are choosing to live in sin. That Christians are choosing to live in willful sin. And, there's a, and you can just let your mind um, go there. I'm not going to give you a list of sins. Listen to Jude's words about false teachers in Jude 1, 3 through 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation... I found it necessary to write appealing to you or begging you to contend for the faith or fight for the faith that was once for all delivered to all the saints. For certain people have crept in. Notice that secret way? They've crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality or licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And then Peter describes these as secret heresies. They've been brought in secretly because they they do have a veneer of truth to them. And for someone who doesn't know God's word and is not paying attention to it, we can easily be led astray. We all can. 
The heresy that Peter warns about comes in slowly, it comes in secretly. It's like the proverbial frog that's in the, it's in the, the warm water. It's on simmer, and the frog's taking a bath and enjoying the water. And then somebody is unknowingly turning that baby up to boil. And next thing the frog knows that he's being boiled to death. And that's the same way that heresy seeps into the church, it seeps into the pulpit, it seeps into our lives, it comes in slowly and secretly. And many times, innocently, at least on the receivers, not innocent on the ones that are preaching it. And I was thinking about what does this look like in churches today, and, I, and I've got a couple examples for you today. Um, one of the reasons that we choose to, about 60 to 70% of the time, to teach through a book of the Bible is to prevent us from picking topics that are hobby horses, that we're passionate about, that we could have a tendency to maybe take out of context. This last weekend, I was at an uh, exposition workshop in Portland. And it, we're talking about a just position of, uh, of darkness and light. You know, going to an exposition workshop in Portland uh, was pretty crazy, actually. A neat, neat city. They need the gospel up there. But I was reminded about biblical theology. And if, you, if you've never heard the, ter- the two words biblical theology, go home and Google it. Um, there's some called biblical theology and systematic theology. Systematic theology means you, you learn individual doctrines, like the doctrine of, of angels or the doctrine of, of end times, which is called eschatology, or, or soteriology, the, the doctrine of salvation. Um, but biblical theology means, means this in its simplest form, is that this is one book about one God and one purpose for that God to redeem his people. And that every word in this book is connected to a sentence. And every sentence is connected to a verse. And every verse is attached to a paragraph. Every paragraph is attached to a chapter. And every chapter is attached to a book of the Bible. And every book of the Bible is part of the entire story and thread. So where heresies slip in, it doesn't mean that heresies can't slip in in a church that teaches expositionally through the book of the Bible. But i got to tell you, it's a lot harder. Because, because when you teach through a book, you can just let the Word speak. So that's, that's one way to, where, where heresy can tend to sneak into the church. Now every teach, church that, um, please don't go away saying Hardy said this. I do not want this tweeted. That every te- church that teaches topically is, is heretical. False. That's not the case. I'm just saying that it's easier to stay away from heresy when you teach through, when you exegete the passage and teach through verse by verse expositionally. Heresy is easier than ever to sneak into the church. We have easy access to sermons on TV, the radio, podcasts, blogs. I'm thankful for them, actually. I'm not, I'm not a seminary-trained pastor. And I don't know actually where I would be without sermons uh, that I can listen to. And by the way, I never listen to a sermon before I get up here because it'll mess me up. I want the Spirit of God to work in me, not some other guy that I don't know. But I'm thankful for sermons. I'm thankful for great books where I can be equipped and where I can be trained. They're good. But how do you know? How do you know those blogs that you're reading each week our sound doctrine. 
How do you know the pastors that you're listening to on TV and the radio? I'm not saying stop doing that. I'm saying how do you know? It's truth. I'm not sure I'm going to have answers for that. But I do know that um, in Acts, Luke described these people that lived in an area called Berea as the noble Bereans. Because, because they wouldn't take Paul's word for it. They would actually examine the scriptures to see if everything Paul was saying was true. And can I say this? You should be doing that with me, too. You should be doing that with every preacher that gets up here. Everybody that you hear on the radio. Everybody you watch on TV. And there's, there's one hermeneutical truth. Hermeneutics means that, that the, the way that we, um, that we pull truth out of the Bible, it's kind of the lens that we look at. And there's one hermeneutical truth for every one of us, and that's this, is that Scripture never contradicts Scripture. Take it to the bank. Scripture never contradicts Scripture. So if you're hearing something on TV or on the radio or reading in a blog or a book, um, and, it, and it contradicts what you're seeing here, that's called heresy. That's called heresy. Call it what it is. And I got to tell you that, um, that the, gosh, I can go down a really bad road here quickly. Uh, and I'm not going to go there. Thank you, Lord. That's the Holy Spirit right there. Because I'm not capable of it. Oftentimes, we like to read and listen to people that, that support our, our, our theology. I do that. I got like favorites. It's good to have favorites. Listen to this quote from this unknown guy or gal. We can lean on the Bible in the same way a drunk leans on a light post, more for support than illumination. More to support our already view that we already think rather than illumination, rather than seeing new truth. That we want to continue um, believing maybe something that we've been believing erroneously for years. So truth always encourages, folks, obedient living motivated by the gospel of grace. False teachers encourage licentious living motivated by the false gospel of grace. Let's go on to verse 2. And, um, oh yeah, gosh, we got plenty of time. 12.30, right? What time are the Broncos on today? Man, let's do it. I'm afraid somebody might fall out of the balcony like Eutychus did. Sorry, let's just shut off here. Verse 2, what are the results of heretical teaching? What's the fruit of heretical teaching? Oh no, actually we don't have that much time. All right, Um, two, two fruits or results of heretical teaching. Many will follow their sensuality. Many will follow them, follow their licentious lives. And number two, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And one builds upon the other. Many will get sucked into their false teaching and live licentiously themselves. You see, the church should look different than the rest of the world. We should have a deep desire to live lives in joyful submission to our master who purchased us. And when the the church follows the false teaching of licentiousness, the way of the truth is blasphemed or maligned and our witness is at stake. We should look different than the world. I'm I'm convicted of that all all the time. It's so easy to want to be in conversations and be part of one of the boys. 
or to do things that the rest of the world is doing. We're called to be salt and light. We've been, we've been transformed and delivered from darkness, transformed into light, and we're to live in light. The divorce rate in the church shouldn't be the same as it is in the world. And I'm talking big C. I'm not talking this church. I'm talking big C. Giving in the church, big C, shouldn't be the same as giving by non-believers to non-profits. There should be reconciliation in the church, forgiveness, a confessing of our sins. So when we live licentious lives, when we live like the world, when we profess being saved by grace, but we go ahead and continue living our own way, it, it blasphemes the gospel. It maligns Jesus Christ. It ruins our witness. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blitz through verses 3 through 10, actually. Because Peter, in these, in these, in these seven-ish verses, gives us two promises that stand in stark contrast to one another. And the first promise is this, that God is just and he will not let the wicked go unpunished. This includes the wickedness of false teachers. In verse 3, the second half of verse 3, Peter says, their condemnation, the, the, the false teacher's condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. What that means is, is that God is a God of justice. And if they don't repent, they're, they're going uh, to uh, experience God's wrath, actually. God is a God of justice, and He will rightly judge those who spew out heretical teachings and entice others to follow their teachings. The second promise is like the first. God is just. And so just as His justice will result in condemnation for the wicked, His justice will also result in rescue for those whose sins were punished by the cross of Christ. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. And I'm going to, um, I'm going to, I'm going to close on this. So, so, so Peter then goes into, um, he says their condemnation, speaking of false, false teachers, their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. He says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept into judgment. What he's saying is that when the, when in, in Genesis 6, when the angels fell and actually entered into women, entered into men who entered into women, gosh, I'm sorry, that's, there's children here. I, it's, it's, you can talk to him about it, I guess. It's, uh, these, these are fa- sorry. These, these are fallen angels. And, um, and what, what Peter's saying here is that the same way that these fallen angels were cast into hell, that's the same fate that is awaiting false teachers. And then verse 5, he says, If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a, brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. What he's saying there is that, that these false teachers and anyone that has not repented and trusted in Jesus Christ for the remission of their sins will experience God's wrath in the same way that the world experienced God's wrath through the flood. But anybody that is clothed in Christ's righteousness through faith 
will never experience that judgment or wrath. And then he kind of gives the coup de grace here in verse 6, 7, and 8. He says, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless de- his lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and give the unrighteous and keep the unrighteousness under, punish- under punishment till the day of judgment. Here's what he's saying here. Sodom and Gomorrah was a vile place. It was full of wickedness. It was very much like our world today. And it says that he called Lot righteous Lot. And he said that he, he rescued Lot. Sodom and Gomorrah was torched. It was incinerated. And it's a foreshadowing of what's going to happen to this rock that we live on before God recreates it. He says, but righteous Lot was spared. You want to know something about Lot? Big time sinner. He was, he was a big time sinner. He was not righteous in his living. But he was righteous because of his faith in salvation. So what God is saying here is that false teachers and other wickedness in this world, unless they bend their knee and repent, they're going to experience judgment. But you and I, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, you will never experience God's judgment you'll only experience His forgiveness and His favor, not because of anything you've done. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, that He who knew no sin became our sin so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. It says that Lot was tormented in his soul because of the wickedness that was around him. Do you feel that at all? I feel that in this election. I feel that in many, in many laws that are being passed. I feel tormented in my soul because of the darkness that we live in. But one day, one day, Jesus is going to return to judge the living and the dead. And he's going to come to rescue his own. And he's going to bring us into his forever presence in his full glory. Where there'll be no more sin and wickedness. There'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more death. And folks, when we see this wickedness, particularly amongst those who don't profess Christ. Those who are wicked and don't profess Christ, what do they need? They don't need our condemnation. They need our gospel. It's our gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that can set them free from the bondage to wickedness and corruption that has a hold of them. But when we see people that are living wicked, godless, licentious lives, 
that are professing the name of Jesus Christ and have no desire to turn from it, that should revolt us. And we have permission to judge them. But we're not to judge unbelievers in any way. I'm so sorry. I got a big mouth. What we get to do here right now, um, I love this, is that we get to celebrate communion. And Jesus told us to remember his death on the cross and his victorious resurrection until he returns. Because he knew what Paul preaches and Peter preaches. That the, that the only hope that we have, the reminder that we need every day is the reminder of the gospel. To be, to be reminded that we were dead in our sins and trespasses just like those who, that are living godless, wicked lives in this world. That we, me, was, I was dead in my sins and trespasses and I did nothing but God in his mercy made me alive in Christ Jesus. And he didn't just save me from my sins and you from your sins or from the guilt of your sin. But he's called you into a forever relationship with the king of the universe who will forever love you and affirm you because of Christ's righteousness in you. And that calls for a different life. That calls for a different type of marriage, a different type of parenting, a different type of giving, a different type of language. So as you come up and grab the elements, be reminded of God's love for you. Be reminded that he is going to return to rescue you, to bring you into his presence forever. And so on your own time as the band leads us in song, come up along the walls and then go back up the aisles and just go back to your seat and take the elements, the crackers that represent his broken body and the juice that represents, that, that represents his spilled blood. Just take it on your own. Enjoy it with your family. Reflect upon the gospel.
Praise the Lord, praise. 